Matthew 17:14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him, that is the Lord Jesus, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. For oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the way of the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then, a few minutes later, came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would touch our hearts. You know what our needs are. You know our failings. You know our unbelief. You know where we wish to serve you and how poorly we are at successfully doing so. We ask that you'd bless us with your word tonight and bless us in our service in your name. We ask these again in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Evidence tells us that during our Lord's earthly ministry, Peter, James, and John were his uh, foremost disciples. They certainly got the most face time with the Savior. They got the most ink, shall we say, as far as the Gospels are concerned. They got the most uh, personal counseling. And uh, they also, for the most part, well, they got most of the rebuke as well. While the Lord Jesus was in his true state, the first 13 verses of this chapter, when the Lord Jesus was at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, being glorified, being properly worshipped, The rest of the disciples, that is the nine, were down at the foot of the mountain, dealing with a man and his demon-possessed son. I would like to use those disciples to illustrate you and me. They are true disciples of Christ, there's no doubt about that, but they're not exactly God's elite, shall we say. Even though Peter, James, and John have had some of the same problems that we have, I think that in some ways we can be more clearly seen in the other disciples who aren't in the forefront. Not only aren't we seeing the Lord in his glorified state, he's up there on the top of the mountain and we're down here, We aren't exactly successful in our personal and ecclesiastical service. This message is not meant to rebuke any one of you 
because I am including myself among the nine. What you might see as rebuke is first and foremost a comment about me. So if you feel uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's just fine because I've been feeling it for the last uh, three days thinking about this message. I don't see the demons of sin flying out of people around me. The reasons for my failure provide the basis for this message this evening and what I hope will be uh, two or three or four more messages in a short series. As someone who is far from an expert in the subject I hope to address, I would like you to join me in my desire toward greater spiritual victory. I would like us to examine what I hope will be the key to bringing the Lord the glory he deserves in his creation. When Christ left the splendor of his glory at the top of that mountain that day and returned to focus on the needs of sinful people, his blessing fell on the demon-possessed child or young man. This is still what our society needs. Our world is full of demon-possessed children. Our church has been commissioned to deal with this kind of problem and to experience the Lord's power in dealing with this problem. This is what you and I need personally. We need to be useful. I want to be useful in the service of the Lord. Our neighbors need us to be the people of God we were designed to be. It should be our desire to bring glory to our Savior by being more like Him than we usually are. And our heart should be crying out with its own special tears, why could not we not cast him out? What's the problem here? Knowing that the service of God is not actually about us, still we should cry, why could not we cast him out? Remember that these disciples, our ministerial forefathers, were called of God into this ministry their ministry. Matthew 10, when Christ had called unto him his 12 disciples, not just the primary three, but all 12 of them, when Christ had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits, just like this one over here in chapter 17, to cast them out. After the Lord had saved them, the Lord of the harvest called his disciples into this work. Eventually, he said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he said, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. But just a few chapters after their initial calling, they proved to be failures. 
They could not do what they were commissioned to do. They failed. They couldn't help this little boy. And over the coming months and years, there were seasons of great victories, and there were longer seasons of great dearth. Sometimes they experienced the power of God, but more often than not, they didn't. What what brought about the periods of failure such as what we see here in Matthew 17? It was certainly not any failure in the Lord. He had not withdrawn his commission to them. He had not withdrawn the power that he had given to them. Recognizing that some victories are harder than others, realizing that some people are harder to win to Christ than others, that is no reflection on the Lord. Because we see him in the book of Acts saving the chiefest of sinners, the very worst of the worst. The Lord is not limited in any way, shape, or form. And in this particular case, all he had to do is say, depart, and the demon was gone. The problem was not in the dead souls to whom the disciples were ministering. The problem was not in the demon-possessed boy. The problem was not in the father. The lack of success was something in the disciples themselves. And the Lord wasted no time in telling them so. They asked, why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, 2,000 foot Mount Tabor, go from there over to there, it would do so. You would say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Why do we not see greater victory in all of its possible aspects? It is not because these are the last days. Don't put the blame on something which the Bible does not blame. Yes, we are approaching the end of the age. Yes, evil is waxing worse and worse. But that is not the reason for the weakness within God's saints. Our weaknesses and strengths are not contingent on our circumstances. So it doesn't matter what's out there. It shouldn't affect our spirituality and our capability of serving the Lord. And even during the tribulation, there will be limited pockets of real revival with great numbers of people being saved. We can't blame the last days. The problem is in us, the servants of the omnipotent God. The conduit of the Lord's power has become constricted. God's victories are not flowing through us as he meant them to do. The Lord Jesus will ask the question, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? 
If it was up to you and me and most of the professed believers on the earth, the answer would be, nope, won't find any. Again, I'm not pointing my finger specifically at you, but toward all of us and myself as your, your pastor. Why could not we cast him out? Jesus said, it's because of your unbelief. Earlier in Matthew 14, we read about a storm out there in the Sea of Tiberias while the Lord Jesus was elsewhere. Today, we could say, in a sense, the Lord Jesus is elsewhere. We could say that he's in heaven Preparing a retirement village for Christians who haven't served well enough to really deserve a good retirement. Today we are in the middle of a tumultuous society that is threatening to sink our little ecclesiastical ship. And when a man of faith, one of Christ's elite sees the Savior through the darkness, sees the Lord Jesus approaching through the boisterous winds and the waves going up and down. He says, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And Christ said to Peter, come. So he steps out by faith, walking on the water doing the physically impossible for a few moments. But then reality steps in. And he hears the boisterous winds. And he sees the slippery water in front of him. Down he goes. His heavy robe becoming even heavier with the rain and the waves threatening to send him to the bottom of that lake, 141 feet down. But immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him, lifted him up, and said, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? That is an important question in so many ways. Why did Peter doubt? Where did your little faith go, Peter? Why can't you trust the Lord to do the impossible, even through yourself? And today, why can't you and I trust God sufficiently to be used miraculously? What's the problem? The Lord's not the problem. Why is it that we trust the Lord for little things for a little while and then our faith evaporates in the polluted atmosphere of a boisterous storm on the sea uh, directed by the God of this world, uh, the God of the Prince of the Power of the Air? Isn't our failure because we don't sufficiently exercise the faith that we have? Peter stepped out of the boat by faith because the Savior bid him to do so. But then he let his faith slip, and he slipped under the waves. That's 
How it goes. Over and over and over again. In his life, in my life. In Luke 17, 5, the disciples said to Christ, Increase our faith. Lord, increase our faith. We know we have a need. Increase our faith. And do you know what the Lord did? It was not, oh, shucks, I thought you'd never ask. Why didn't you ask me earlier? He didn't smile and say, thank you for this request. I'll grant your request. No. He began to lecture them. Placing the failure right where they belonged in their own laps. Lord, increase our faith. He didn't wave a magic wand over their heads. He didn't sprinkle moon dust in their hair so that they'd have greater faith. Even though faith is a gift of God, you and I are responsible to take it, use it, exercise it, strengthen it, multiply it. The disciples' weakness in faith was born and bred, created and spread by their own sinfulness. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Sin produces the faithlessness and the faithfulness produces more sinfulness and it's a horrible cycle. They were not wrong in asking Christ to increase their faith. But they were wrong in thinking that it was up to the Savior to do it when he'd already given them their faith. Mark 9 gives Peter's account of what Matthew records in chapter 17. Peter was there that day, having come down from the mountain, probably at the side of the Lord Jesus. So he may have heard something that Matthew, one of the regular disciples, missed. And Peter passed that on to Mark, who recorded it for our benefit in his gospel. It reveals that the boy's father may have had more understanding of the problem than the disciples did. Jesus said to the man, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Every true child of God, every true Christian is a man or a woman of faith. If you had no faith, you wouldn't be a child of God. It's the gift of God. If you have eternal life, that is proof that you have been given God's grace of faith. The problem on the lake was not Peter's faith in Christ. It was the offsetting strength of his unfaith, his unbelief. The Lord declared, all things are possible to him that believeth. Peter should have been crying out, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Where is Christianity's problem today? 
Why can't we cast out those demons on a more regular basis? As I've said, it's not a problem with the Lord or his willingness to bring glory to his own name. He says that the problem is our unbelief, our lack of faith, our unfaith. Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief. There's probably not a member of our church who does not believe that our God is omnipotent. We know and we believe that God can do anything he chooses to do. Anything. When he tells the disciples that they can order trees and even mountains to be cast into the sea, we can be sure that the Lord certainly can do that sort of thing. Intellectually and theologically, we are people of faith. But practically and experientially, not so much. As much as I dislike my neighbor's, two neighbors, locust trees, I would never dream of asking God or trying to trust God to cast either of those trees into the Puget Sound or Lake Coeur d'Alene. Wouldn't even think about it, although I know we could do it. And don't we do the same sort of thing in much of our prayers and throughout much of our ministries? We pray for a certain young man to be saved knowing that God could give him a new heart at any moment. But do we actually believe and trust God to do it? This next Sunday. Do we actually believe that he will? Do we trust him to do it? The problem's not with our faith, which is theologically correct, but with our more practical unbelief overriding our faith. We believe that God can give us the ability to walk on the rolling surface of Lake Ponderé during a windstorm. But I'm not stepping out of the boat. I'm not going to do it. God can allow me to walk in that water. But I'm not going to do it. Of course, to us, he's never said, Come on. He did to Peter. What has he said to us? He has said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. And lo, I am with you in this ministry always, even to the end of the world. He has said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There have been thousands of churches of Christ throughout the ages which are not in existence today. Some of them have been destroyed by persecution. 
as their members gave their lives for their Savior and for their faith. And some have been eaten up by false doctrine and other sins. But I will stick my my neck out and say, many of those churches simply fell into dissipation through a neglect of practical faith. They were not seeing the salvation of demon-possessed boys. And it didn't bother them. It didn't disturb them. They let the power of God slip through their hands without realizing it. And how did they do that? The Lord Jesus tells us exactly why we lack this miraculous power. We don't have to wonder about the cause of our spiritual failures. The Lord does not want us to be deceived about this. He comes out and says, here's your problem. The Lord wants us to know. The nine average disciples asked the Lord, why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. How be it, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Directly coupled to our faith, our failure in faith is our failure in prayer. Reaching out to the source of our faith and the source of our power. Yes, we pray that the Lord will miraculously work in the hearts of the people in Deer Park. And we pray for the salvation of those lost people who are close to our hearts. But do we pray with the expectation of those prayers to be answered right now, this Sunday? Do we pray in faith? Do we pray in expectation? In other words, can our unbelief be seen in our prayer lives, even in our expression of faith? I am not one of those name-it-and-claim-it charismatic heretics. I'm not talking about some sort of mystical, religious, or spiritual visualization programs. Picture it, and it's yours. I'm not... What I am doing is talking about trusting God to do things that He has indirectly and sometimes even directly said He will do. We'll probably return to this illustration sometime in a future lesson. But for the moment, consider the men who carried their crippled friend up onto the roof of a man's house, tearing the tiles away so that they could drop this man uh, right down before the Lord. They possessed a theological faith in the omnipotence of Christ. But beyond their theological faith, they actually expected to see their friend walk out the door in a few minutes. They expected the Lord to heal him. That is supposed to be our ministry. It's easy to say, difficult to put into practice. 
The word expectation must be a part of our theology of faith. Yes, Christ can save anyone. But do we have the faith to expect him to do it? This Sunday, the next time we see this person. Can we remain believers after years and years of waiting for the Lord to save this person? Now, after all of these years, next Sunday, I expect to see him saved. Lord, I trust that you will save him. Save this soul. Can we remain believers when God shows us that our hopes and our wishes come close to his will, but not exactly in it? The Lord has something else better. The woman with the issue of blood had faith to trust Christ for the healing of her body. But when he healed her, he healed her soul as well, giving more than what she first requested. Can we trust the Lord for more? If she hadn't exercised her faith, she would have had nothing. And if I can put it this way, the giving of more is what revival is all about. The Lord's stepping beyond what we anticipated. But we've committed ourselves to this little bit. And the Lord blesses. My heart is filled with all sorts of thoughts on this subject. I plan to share some of them with you over the next couple of weeks here and there. But in the meantime, Austin and I plan to be here this Saturday morning at 7 o'clock for prayer. We need, I need, to work on my faith and my prayer of faith. And if any of you men want to join us, uh, you're welcome. But I'm not going to call this an official church function. I'm not sure the genuine revival has ever come from an official church function. From what I have read many times, it's when a group of people just got burdened about the blessing of the Lord. Seeking it from the Lord in His grace and His power, and it came. However, this evening, we are in the midst of an official church function. Some people call this midweek uh, Bible study. Some people call this Wednesday prayer meeting. We need to pray this evening for the Lord's blessing. Trusting the Lord to give us those blessings. Not just asking for them. Lord, be gracious and give us this and this and this and this. We need to learn how to trust the Lord and expect Him to grant these blessings. It's my prayer that we might begin to see miraculous answers to our prayers. And the Lord making our few months in this year to be the very best in the history of Calvary Independent Baptist Church. Over the next few weeks, we're going to have some, hopefully, practical illustrations that deal with some of this stuff.